Hey, if you got your Bibles, if you would real quick, flip open to Acts chapter 17, Acts 17, and then we're also going to jump over to Exodus chapter 3. Acts 17, Exodus chapter 3. Um, I want to give a little preface. Uh, there's kind of a rule when it comes to preaching that you don't ever re-preach someone else's message, okay? Uh, part of that's for, you know, copyright infringement and things like that, but uh, the big reason is because nobody can preach the sermon better than you can the first time out. You're talking to the Lord directly, and uh, it just makes it easier that way. But every now and again, you come across one of Paul's messages, and it is so difficult to preach one of Paul's messages, but I'm going to attempt it today because we don't skip verses. We go through every single one of them, and so this passage that we're about to read today is really, really powerful, but it's going to get so deep. In fact, when Peter tries to reteach some of Paul's principles, Peter makes the statement, Paul talks in lofty words that few of us understand, and so you just need to know, I think you're brilliant. I think you're going to receive it today, uh, but we're going to talk about the essence of who God is today. It starts with this question. Have you ever tried to put something very important into words before? Ever tried to put something very important into words before? For some of you, if you've ever had to have a conversation uh, with a parent about dating their son or daughter, right? To having that conversation before the relationship begins, you try to make your words very precise. You don't want to say too much or too little, right? Uh, you want to make sure that you do that in the right way. Uh, for some of you who've gone through an engagement before, you know that, uh, I mean, that's that moment on steroids. In fact, I heard one person say this, uh, that uh, the reason that you put together a really exciting engagement event is because just in case you screw up the words, the sentiment still gets across, right? Uh, through the venue that you're in or the moment, uh, you still know what's, uh, what's taking place. So I mean, it's the opposite side. You ever had to apologize before? It was a really important apology needed the words to be just the right way. You need to say not too much, but definitely enough. And then for some of you, if you're in the circumstance like I am with apologies, I just need to claim it. You know what I mean? You don't need to dodge any of it. You just need to receive it, that you were the one that messed up, and you don't need to trip over those words. Very important uh, that you just uh, say it the right way. Autumn and I got to experience that with fundraising this week. You want to make sure that you try to say it the right way, that God is doing great things, but we still need the money, right? Uh, you got to make sure you walk that line and say that the right way. And then, of course, the most important, in matters of faith, when you want to portray to somebody your belief in God that truly affects every aspect of who you are, and you want to say it the right way and not put it in the wrong light. In Acts 17, verses 22 and 23, if you'll flip that direction, in Acts 17, Paul is doing something that I didn't realize until my studies this last time. I didn't understand that he was doing this. This is so interesting. He started, remember, we've been reading in weeks past, it says, as was his custom, he would start by sharing the gospel at the synagogue. Now, this is interesting. He started sharing the gospel with Jews because these were individuals who had already acknowledged that Yahweh was the one true God. And then he starts there in the synagogue because he doesn't have to prove that there's one God. He can start with Jesus as the Messiah. That's the piece that he has to prove. Here in Acts 17, Paul does it different. It's the first recorded time that he is standing before an entire Gentile group that believes in multiple gods and goddesses. They worship Zeus, they worship Hera, they worship Aphrodite, they worship all these different gods and goddesses. And for this meeting, this moment, it's the first recorded time we have a sermon from Paul where he talks to a major Greek audience and he starts with proving that God is the one God. Look with me, if you will, at Acts 17, verses 22 and 23. It says, so then Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagos, 
and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, he says, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Circle, highlight, and underline, To an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. Now stop right there for just a minute. Remember, Paul goes into the synagogues because the idea is he's going to start with people who have a foundation of God and teach on Jesus as the Messiah. He walks into this group, and he doesn't just talk to all Greeks. He comes in and says, I found an altar that says to an unknown God. Now, what's been told to us through this little tiny passage right here is that Paul is not just casting the net wide to everyone, but he is again speaking to a very specific group. He's speaking to agnostics. Now, here's what's interesting. The word a in Greek means no, and the word theos means God. And so because of that, the word atheist that we have today means no God or to believe that there is no God. But agnostic, a still means no, but gnosko means knowledge. And so to put a and gnosko together, the word agnostic means someone who believes there's something out there, but they have no knowledge on what that specific thing is. So Paul comes in, and he doesn't just target all Greeks. He tries to find a common denominator with the group that already believe that there is something out there. They just don't know what it is. So Paul says, I've walked around. I've seen all your gods and goddesses. And I even found that some of you worship at the altar of something that's out there, something that's true, something that's created the universe, but you just don't know how to put your finger on what it is. Paul speaks to the agnostics. And listen, if you're taking notes, write this down. Paul is not looking to get God a seat at the table. He aims to prove that God is God alone. Let me say that again. Paul is not looking to get God a seat at the table at the Areopagos. He aims to prove that God is God alone. There are some of you today, as we go through this message, and it's going to seem very seminary-oriented. It's very practical. I've tried to break it down for you as simply as possible. And for some of you, it may start to sand off the rough edges so that God begins to come into focus for you. Sometimes we can have a picture of God that's not accurate or that's fuzzy. Paul does a great job here laying out the parameters for who God is. And it begs the question. This is our big question we're going to address today. How does Paul describe the essence of God? How does Paul describe the essence of God? What's he like? How does he work? Paul is going to describe that at the Areopagos on the congressional record, right? He's going to describe that for us today in Acts 17. Now let's look at Acts 17.24, addressing that question, how does Paul describe the essence of God? I want to encourage you, some of you, if you are, are comfortable doing this, you might even write these four points we're going to go through today in the margin of your Bible. Here's what it says. Acts chapter 17, verse 24. It says, The God who made the world... And everything in it is the, is the Lord of heaven and earth, look at this, and does not live in temples built by human hands. Underline and highlight, he does not live in temples built by human hands. How does Paul describe the essence of God? Number one, God is limitless. 
God is limitless. He cannot be confined, and he cannot be controlled. Paul lays out here from the very beginning, you in Greek culture have built these temples to Aphrodite, these temples to Mars, these temples to Zeus, and you believe that the gods indwell in these facilities. He says, as far as God goes, the one true God, he's not confined to the temple. Some of you might have been raised that when you walked into the church, that it was the place where God dwells. The sanctuary is the place that we come together to worship Almighty God, but God is not confined to this room. It's not like it's his fishbowl, all right? You ever had a fishbowl before? We had a little fish tank at the house, a little 10-gallon tank. We started out with seven fish, and now we're down to two, all right? Just the way it goes. You know, it's a fish-eat-fish world out there. So anyway, sometimes when you look at a fish tank, the tank itself watching the fish swim around. It's beautiful. It's amazing. And they can do things that we can't do. They can breathe underwater. But if you take the fish out of water, then they get in trouble real fast. For the ancients, and for some of us, you have this viewpoint of God, like God's got to stay in his little bubble. He's got to stay in his little fishbowl because otherwise he's not going to be able to breathe or survive in the world that's around him, in the elements that surround him. God is limitless He cannot be confined, he cannot be controlled, and he does not need the church in order to exist. Sometimes you can have a view like a genie lamp. Remember reading the story about the genie and the lamp or seeing the movie Aladdin when you were a kid? The genie's all powerful, all cosmic power. Itty bitty living space, right? The idea that this big, powerful being would be confined to a lamp and the lamp couldn't release the genie unless a human hand rubs the lamp in order for the genie to leave. God is not limited. God has no constraints. God is so big our minds couldn't even comprehend how big he is. If you're taking notes, write this down. God's power and reach know no constraints. God's power and reach No, no constraints. You can write this down if you want to, too. The church is not God's cage, all right? The church is not God's cage. Believe it or not, even some really godly people of the past have struggled with this concept of how big God is. Save your spot in Acts Acts 17, and now flip over to the very beginning of the Bible, second book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 3. In Exodus chapter 3, we've got a situation where where Moses meets with God for the very first time. Remember, Moses has been led out into the wilderness. He's been serving as a shepherd. He's been learning the historical truth of the faith. But for him, he's not had a real one-on-one experience with God. And in in Exodus chapter 3, all of a sudden, Moses walks up and sees a bush that is burning, but that's not consumed. The picture there is the God who wrote the laws of physics has suspended them for this moment for this instance so that the bush continues to burn but it doesn't burn to the ground it doesn't turn into ashes Moses realizes that he is communing with the creator of the laws of physics in that moment and he begins to have a discussion with him at that point God says I'm going to use you my chosen instrument to lead your people out of Israel to lead my people out of out of out of Egypt and into Israel at that point Moses a convicted murderer at that point Moses then comes back and says, "Uh, I don't know how I feel about that, God. I don't know if I feel like this is a good thing or not. I mean, I realize you control the laws of physics here, but to ask me to step out on faith in this moment, I just don't know. Look at what happens in verse 13. You got to see the sarcasm of Moses here. Moses says to God, "Uh, suppose I do go to the Israelites. Underline and highlight that. Moses himself 
says, God, uh, suppose I do what you've asked me to do, burning bush. Suppose I do this and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent you, has sent me to you. And they ask me, what's his name? What then shall I tell them? Now stop right there for just a minute. What happens here, what Moses has just said to God is before I commit to do what you've asked me to do, I need to know which God you are. Are you the God of the sun? Are you the God of the moon? Are you the God of war? Are you the God of the harvest? I need to know what your parameters, what your limitations are before I pledge my allegiance to you. Now watch what God says to him. Verse 14, God goes, you want to know my name? God says to Moses, I am who I am. That's what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now stop right there for just a minute. English doesn't do this justice. Yahweh is our attempt to encompass what he's just said. God looks at him and says, you want to know my name? The word that he gives there is the to be verb. He says, I is, I am, I was, I is, and I is to come, is what he basically says. I know it's terrible grammar, but it's basically what he's just said there. He goes, you tell them that the God who is, is the one who has sent you. This is the one. And then all of a sudden Moses goes, cool, I'll see you in Egypt. I mean, that's what happens there. God is God. He is limitless. There is no box to put him in. There are no constraints. It begs the question, have you put limits on a limitless God? Have you put limits on a limitless God? Some of you would say, Zach, how do we do that? It's when you have a problem that's so big, you feel like God can handle the little ones, but maybe not the big ones. Or some of you have little problems, stuff that you think are little problems, but you don't bring those to God because you feel like it'll be a waste of his time. God is so big. God is so limitless. He knows no constraints. There is no problem so big or so small that he can't help you walk through it. When it comes to matters of faith, God's power, his reach is limitless. There's nowhere you can go where he is not. And he wants to walk you through the difficulty that you're navigating. But that's not all. Now flip over to Acts 17, and let's read verse 25. Here's what it says next. Notice that again, it said before, he doesn't live in temples built by hands. Watch the repetition here in verse 25. And he is not served by human hands either, as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. Underline, he is not served by human hands. Right on the heels of he doesn't live in things that we build, he says God is not contingent upon our service in order for him to be God. If you're taking notes, write this down. How does Paul describe the essence of God? Number one, God is limitless. And number two, God is without need. He is perfect. Write that down. God is without need. He is perfect. This is not perfect just in character alone. This is perfect in existence. God is not dependent upon your sacrifices. He is not dependent, again, upon your contrite heart. God does not depend on you in order for him to exist. God is without need. He is perfect. So back in the day, this concept, even for pastors, can be a hard thing to, get, to grasp. I'll never forget when I was a sophomore in college. It was the first time I went to Oklahoma State University. We beat Boise State by one point yesterday. All right, it was, it, was, it, was, it was rough. It was rough. I think we had like 82 total passing yards. It was really, really bad. But a win's a win, baby. Anyway, all that to say. <laughs> My sophomore year at OSU, I'm in social science classes. 
And I took a philosophy class, and I want to say I was reading Kant for the first time, okay? Some of you know Kant. I was reading Kant for the first time. And then all of a sudden, everything becomes so transactional, it began to affect my faith. Now, just for the record, that doesn't mean you need to go to a Christian school. You can get just as thrown off in your faith at a Christian school as you can at a public school, okay? But here's what happened. I go into this class, I start to read this philosophy, and then I've got to write a paper on my concept of God. And because of what I'd been reading in those philosophy classes, I sit down as one who would be a future minister, and I start to write out what I call the divine worker theory. It's a true story. I'm just I'm telling you the honest truth. This is the way preachers' brains try to wrap their heads around things. And when we try to develop our own theology, that's where you end up in a mess. And that's what happened. I'm 19 years old, and I write the divine worker theory. And the idea was that when Satan left uh, with angels from heaven, that that created a worker shortage for, uh, for God in heaven. And the idea was that he sent his son Jesus so that he could recruit more workers uh, and then send us, uh, send us to heaven to fill in those wage gaps. I'd definitely been reading too much Marx as well at that point. And so all that to say, <laughs> just read what they put in front of you, right? Now listen, I call my dad, who was all but dissertation for his PhD in Roman law. I call my dad, and I go, Dad, I've had to write this paper for class. I call it the divine worker theory. And I start to walk him through this thing. And my dad sits on the other end of the phone, and I go, what do you think? And I'll never forget what my dad said. He goes, son, do you think God needs you? That's what he said. Do you think God needs you? I said, well, he sent his son to die for us, John 3, 16. He goes, I didn't ask you if God loved you. He said, do you think God needs you to exist? Do you think God needs you in order to continue moving forward? And the answer to that is a resounding no. God doesn't need you. Now, the key is he loves you. So much that he sent his one and only son to die for you. But the mindset, this attitude that God's got to have your soul or he'll be incomplete. God is perfect. Not perfect just in character, but perfect in existence. He doesn't have to have you. But he loved you enough that he sent his son in exchange for you. What a beautiful thing for us to understand. If you don't believe me, by the way, a little side note, if you want to take this down, write this down, you can. You have no negotiating power with God. Say that again. You have no negotiating power with God. For any of you who are sitting there and you've read the story about the, I can't remember who it was, but that the, somebody traded their soul to the devil for this thing or that thing. Again, the only place your soul can go is to Jesus. It already belongs to, it already belongs to hell at this point without him. You've got to remember, God is without need, and you have no negotiating power. There's no ace in the hole that you're sitting with so that you can throw it down and gain eternity with God in heaven. Jesus is the only way that we can be saved. If you don't believe me, look at Psalm chapter 50, verses 8 through 15. If you're a type of person that really feels like you've got to earn your way to God, or you've got to earn your way into his good graces, uh, Psalm 58 through 15 might be some that you want to circle, highlight, and underline. You ready? Look at Psalm, 50, uh, Psalm chapter 50, and let's read verses 8 through 15. This is Asaph who's writing this. And he's writing this uh, as the words of God. Verse 8, I did not rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings, which are ever before me. Look at this, verse 9. I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens. 
For every animal of the forest is mine, says the Lord, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine. I love verse 12. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. That's God. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine and all that's in it. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Sacrifice, thank offerings to God, fulfill your vows to the Most High, and call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you will honor me. Here's what the Lord says right here so powerfully. He goes, do you think that I'm like these other gods and goddesses that you've created in the ancient world? You offered up blood sacrifices because God needed the blood to drink. You offered up the animal sacrifices because God needed the meat to eat. The Lord says very powerfully right here, I don't need your stuff. It's about the act of worship. And before Jesus, the sacrifice was the way to show, again, that without the shedding of blood, there was no forgiveness for sin. God looks and he goes, you think I want the blood? You think I want the meat? He comes back and says, all of it belongs to me anyway. He comes back and says, fulfill your vow. God is without need. He is perfect. We cannot negotiate with him. The problem that we have is we start to view God like a vending machine. And the idea, because you're very hardworking people, is you think to yourself subconsciously, if I put in my one coin of church attendance, if I put in my one coin of reading scripture, if I put in my one coin of prayer, if I put in my one coin of trying to be a good person, then I can look at it and say, God, Coca-Cola, bless me. Give me what I want, what I deserve, what I have earned. And the problem is what we deserve is death. That's what each one of us deserves. God's without need. He is perfect. And we have nothing that we can give to him in exchange it begs the question, have you come to terms with your position? Have you come to terms with your position? You have nothing to negotiate with. Even your soul is something that God receives. It's not something that you give. It's something that he receives. You have no negotiating power with God. You ever been stuck in the mud before? I mean, driving a truck or a four-wheeler, a truck car, a four-wheeler, uh, or for some of you from up north, we didn't have a ton of snow, but you ever gotten stuck in the snow before? When you're stuck and you truly cannot get out, what's the first thing you do when you realize you can't get out? You still try anyway to get out, right? Every time. I don't care how much mud it is, you still do forward and reverse as hard as you can, right? Because you want to see if you can get out on your own. It's the worst in the snow because as you start to go forward and backward, forward and backward, it creates like this slick ice, you know, a little uh, a ditch that you're stuck in and you can't get anywhere close. And you have to come to a point where you come to grips with and realize, I got to find somebody with a tow cable. I got to find somebody with a hook, somebody with four wheel drive that can pull me out of the mess that I've gotten myself into. When it comes to almighty God, we are stuck in the mud and we can't get out of that muddy sin on our own. God is the only one who can pull us out, and there's nothing we can do to negotiate with him. It's only through his mercy and the shed blood of Jesus Christ that we have any hope. He's the one who has to pull us out. But Paul takes it even further. Now look at Acts 17, and let's look at verses 26 through 28. It says next, from one man, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the set times for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. I love verse 28. That's such a beautiful verse. I want you to notice something. 
He starts macro and he takes it micro. In him, we live. In him, we live. We have our lives, he says. But then in him, we also move moment by moment, step by step. And then he says, and in him, we have our being. Our very existence is because of God, is in the palm of his hand. If you're taking notes, write this down. How does Paul describe the essence of God? Number one, God is limitless. Number two, God is without need. He's perfect. And number three, our dependence on God is constant. Our dependence on God is constant. In him we live and move and we have our very existence because of him. I love that he closes it off by saying, just as your own poets have said, Greeks, we are his offspring. We're his little children would be a great description there uh, that Paul has given. The idea, Paul's own example, is our dependence on God is constant just like a little baby. As awesome as that little baby is, again, as amazing and miraculous as that little baby is, it can do nothing on its own without help being given to it. Some of you just had new babies. That baby can't do nothing without you. It needs you for its very survival, as amazing and miraculous as it is. So there's two types of people in this world. Those who appreciate the comedy of Will Ferrell and those who don't, all right? Okay, just so I can know, how many of you appreciate Will Ferrell? Raise your hand. There's a few of us in here. How many of you can't stand him? Raise your hand. You're wrong. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. So back in the day, just suffer through if you're not a Will Ferrell fan. Saturday Night Live back in the day, there was a skit that they did. And uh, this was so long ago. I think that uh, Charlie Sheen was the host this week at Saturday Night Live. And... uh, Chris Kattan is playing uh, the uh, husband, and the wife is Rachel Dratch, and Rachel Dratch is having a baby, all right? And so in the deal, uh, uh, Charlie Sheen is the doctor, and uh, he goes, one more push, one more push. And then all of a sudden, she does one more push, and all of a sudden, Will Ferrell comes out, and he goes, ah, man, it was hot in there. And all of a sudden, they're like, what is this? And then Charlie Sheen goes, "Uh, congratulations, you're uh, the proud parents of a 37-year-old man. And he goes, hey, Ted Brogan, sales. And he sticks out his hand. And there's like, what? What is this? And they go through this. And he's like, oh, man, I got to get out of here. I got to get to Atlantic City tonight. I got money on the Penguins game. And then the baby walks out the door and leaves, all right? Here's the picture. As weird as that illustration is, I hope it sticks with you. That's not the way birth works. Nobody walks out a 37-year-old man who's got money on the Penguins game. You ever held a newborn baby? Oh, my gosh. It's precious. It's precious. And I'm telling you, they got little eyes. They got little fingers. They got that little nose. And I'm telling you, you look at this little baby, and I'm telling you, it's it's an absolute miracle. But if you just leave the baby to try to care for itself, what you've done is cruel. When God looks at us, we are his offspring. He knows that it's hard to live in this world. And he knows that we can't do it without him. Sometimes we forget that we can't do it without him. That he, in him we live and move and have our very existence and have our being. And when we don't, it's kind of funny. So Jack, our nine-year-old, Jack navigates autism. And because of that... Jack's brain is so beautiful, and we have these moments that are just so, again, beautifully human. And so like the other day, we asked our kids what their favorite color was, and Lulu said turquoise, 
Harper said purple, and Jack said evil green. That's what he said was his favorite color, which is funny. Yeah, the autism brain, his, his, his form of autism takes two words, jams them together, and evil green, I, I knew exactly what color he was talking about. You know, it was very descriptive. So we asked him the other day. We said that we were talking about the future and whatnot, and he got real serious. He's nine, and he goes, Dad, I got to get a job. <laughs> and we were like, you got to get a job? We're like, what? And he goes, yep, I got to get a job at the power plant when I'm 14. And we're like, wow, really? The power plant, you know? All for engineering? But I mean, he had just pulled this very specific job at the age of 14. And we're sitting there with him and we're like, son, you don't have to go to work when you're 14. You've got plenty of time. You want to you work at the power plant? You go to college. You get to do all this education, become an engineer. And he just goes, nope, I got to go work at the power plant when I'm 14. And then he goes, you and mommy can come visit me. And I mean, don't miss this. That's what we sound like to God. We look at God and we go, I got to have all these things. I got to get all this stuff. I have this plan. I have these goals. And the Lord looks at us and goes, you're so cute. You're so cute. He knows we need those things. And you know what? Sometimes we sound like a nine-year-old saying we got to go work at the power plant when we're 14. We don't realize that there's a whole lot of other things that have to happen before that dream comes to be a reality. I want to encourage you. God is limitless. God is without need. And your dependence on God is not limited to this hard time that you're navigating right now. In him you live and move and have your very existence. It begs the question, is there part of your life that you consider separate from God's reach or sight? Is there part of your life that you consider separate from God's reach or sight? There is nowhere you can go where he is not. There is no weight you are carrying that he cannot carry for you. Is there part of your life you consider separate from God's reach or sight? There is no place you can go where he is not. And then we get our last set of verses. Some of you, again, who are OCD are like, why did we do four and not three? We always do three. We're doing four today. It's going to be okay. All right? Look with me, if you will. Acts 17, verses 29 through 31. Here's what it says. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. It says an image made by man's design or skill. Underline an image made by man's design or skill. Notice that we had, leading up to this point, we had uh, back in verse 24, temples built by human hands. In verse 25, not served by human hands. And now all of a sudden he takes it in depth. Not something that is uh, being like gold or silver or stone, an image that is made by man's design, something that comes from our head or something that we invent. Verse 30 is so powerful. It says in the past... God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands, underline that word commands, all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with his justice by the man he has appointed, and he has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. If you wondered where Jesus was going to come into the equation, it's right here at the end of his discussion. Paul doesn't just speak about God. He brings it right back to the cross, even with this group that had no knowledge of who God was leading up to this point. It all leads to Jesus. But watch what he's done here. He's laid out and said, this is not something you've thought up or you've created. But Paul understands, just like today, one of the biggest arguments then become, if you say that the entirety of eternity hinges on Jesus, what about those people 
who existed before Jesus came to die for our sins. Many of you in this culture still ask that question today or have someone that you're witnessing to that asks that same question. You need to memorize Acts 17, verse 30. Look at what he says. He says in Acts 17, 30, In the past, pre-Jesus, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. The picture there is not that if they existed pre-Jesus that everybody gets to be saved. The picture there is God is fair, God is just, and what we find in verse 30 is God is fully cognizant that that is a more complicated question. But moving forward, Jesus is it And he is the one way to repent. In fact, the word that's used there is the imperative command. He is not one way to be saved. He is not a way to be saved. He is not one of the many paths to the one path. It says very specifically, Jesus is the one by whom we can repent. He's the one and only hope that humanity has. Our final point. How does Paul describe the essence of God? God is limitless. God's without need. Our dependence on God is constant. And number four, God made us. And we are incapable of making him. God made us, and we are incapable of making him. It says in Scripture that we were made in his image, but we were not made his equal. That's the picture you have to remember. We were made in the image of Christ, but we were not made to be the equal with God. Things that God can do. It is impossible for us to create anything on our own. If you want to write this down, our final quote today, the essence of idol worship is to attempt to create something in our own image. The essence of idol worship is to attempt to create something in our own image. Just for the record, you figured out, by the way, people didn't really worship the stone image. They knew that they had built it with their own hands. They worshiped what the image symbolized. It's why you worshipped Zeus, because he was the god of thunder, right? Or because he was, the, he, was the, uh, he was the lead of all the gods and goddesses in Greek culture. It's why you worshipped uh, the god of the harvest. They wanted a good harvest, and so what they would do is they would put all their time into effort into pushing towards having a good harvest or making money. We're not so much more sophisticated than the ancients. Our false, our false idols are money. For some of you... Your people who love your family, and the family has become a false idol. It's a great thing to pursue, to have a loving family, but it's a terrible God to serve. You know why? Because it can be gone in an instant. Read the book of Job. One gust of wind and his seven sons and three daughters are gone in one fell swoop. Family's a wonderful thing to work towards. It's a terrible God to serve. It can be gone in an instant. Money? And we're talking about more taxes all the time, aren't we right now? The money can be gone in an instant. You can do absolutely nothing different, nothing wrong. And the money can disappear in an instant. And then for some of you, let's just be honest, this job. Job's a great thing to pursue with your life. It's a terrible God to serve. We're on the house side here, people. We're not on the fancy Senate side, you know what I mean? (laughs) We're on the house side. Your jobs change every two years, right? You make your job your God. Your position of power and leadership, your God, man, odds are the wind's going to blow a different direction. I heard somebody say the other day that it shouldn't be stars and stripes, that the, uh, the uh, uh, flag for America should be a pendulum that swings from one side to the other, right? It can change so quickly. Now, I'm just joking about that. Listen to me. 
Great thing to pursue with your life. Terrible God to serve. I want to encourage you. It's not things that we build with our hands. There's no way you can build God. There's no way you can think up a worldview that can exist apart from God. With him, God made us, and we are incapable of making him. It begs the final question today. Do you know the one true God, or do you worship something you made up? Do you know the one true God, or do you worship something you made up? Paul preached it better, I know, but I did the best I could. I want to encourage you. Hopefully today, just like me when I put on my glasses, the world is fuzzy, and then when I put the glasses on, things come into focus. I pray that that happened for some of you with God today, that some of the fuzzy aspects have come into focus. Let's bow our heads for prayer.